Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, neighbors, friends, collaborators, accountability partners, and writing buddies. I'm Grant Faulkner, executive director of a wondrous writing community called NaNoWriMo, and I'm with my community-minded co-host, Brooke Warner. And I've been thinking a lot about the role community can play in a writer's life because in researching the crime novelist Kelly Garrett, our guest today, I was impressed by how central community has been to her and how conscious she has been about being a part of communities and also creating communities that are welcoming and inclusive. And we've talked about the role of community often on this podcast, but I I think the role of a creative community is something that is still undervalued by a lot of writers and other creators. And and there's such a mythology, you know, about artists creating from a place of alienation and or solitude. And and there's obviously some or a lot of truth to that. You know, our our stories are ways to seek to understand our alienation and to reconcile or resolve it or just to express it. But, but I think a feeling of belonging is, is so important in that expression. Um, a feeling of belonging as a creator gives you more power to take risks, uh, to fill the void of silence, to believe in your story. And, you know, when, when we think of finishing a novel we might or memoir, we might think of words like inspiration, imagination, determination, playfulness, grit, daring, and a vulnerability. But, but there's a word that's the foundation for all of those words, and that's, that's belonging. I think you have to feel some sort of belonging for those for those other words to exist. And I, I, I'd argue that even even those authors who do feel alienated or separate, um, who are writing as outsiders, they're, they're, they're writing to disrupt our current notions of belonging and, and maybe create a new environment of belonging. So after that big ramble, Brooke, I'm curious <laughs> what your take is on the need to belong and the creative power that a sense of belonging can bestow. Yeah, I mean, it's a big question. And I know that some authors thrive in communities so much so that they can't do what they do without them. And in fact, Kelly speaks to that in the interview today, which I think is interesting. Um, Others, I think, long for community and don't really know how to either find them or position themselves within them, or maybe they're not really joiners. And so the whole community thing can end up feeling alienating to, to them or maybe kind of fraught. I personally got really involved with SheWrites.com when it was fairly new. I mean, I was still working at Seal Press at the time. And of course, that community ended up being such a huge catalyst for me. And I was friends with the original founders, uh, Kami Wyckoff and Deborah Siegel. Uh, And Deborah had come up with a line that I loved at the time, which was, writers don't let writers write alone. Uh, I don't know if she invented that line, but she's the first person that I ever heard say it. And that was the ethos of She Writes. And it was this space where women came together to write and to share resources. And importantly, they were promoting each other. Uh, And that was something that just blew my mind because I came out of traditional publishing where no one was doing that, you know, where people were like trying to keep authors away from each other. Um, And so I have been very much mindful of keeping that kind of community intact with the press that is She Writes Press, which was built on the community of SheWrites.com, because I wanted it to be a space where authors had one another. It's so lonely out there. And that's what I find most people 
describing about their writing process. And so if you have community, it's not just that you have other people in your corner, but you have a sense of purpose. You have people to turn to when it gets hard. You have collaboration. And for me personally, it's about accountability. Uh, like I, I can't write without accountability. And so accountability means at least one other human, <laughs> you know, I'm better if it's a group of humans. Uh, and then all, all of this shows, though, how much we need each other. Obviously, we're very social animals. And so even people who think they're antisocial need each other. And I do think and it's actually been my experience, Grant, that writers who have strong communities actually do better, uh, you know, despite their actual successes, you know, when it comes to sales or fame they just do better. They they write more, they achieve their goals in a better way, and I think they stay on the writing path. That's such an interesting theory, and I, I, I think I'll agree with you on that, too. I, I, I love the line, writers don't let writers write alone. That should be a bumper sticker, maybe. It's if a it good one. Already. Um, <laughs> at the same time, I, I've definitely been in the camp of, please leave me alone to write. So I think the, the idea of community, as you mentioned, and belonging can take many forms, and you have to figure out what form works best for you. So I definitely don't want to stiff arm anyone into thinking they have to do it any one way. Um, but I've been thinking about this because I, because I recently went to an in-person gathering where I had to meet new people and see people I hadn't seen before, the pandemic. And it reminded me a little bit of my first day of kindergarten, I think. You know, I, I felt a, a moment of trepidation, which struck me as strange and Maybe I was just feeling introverted, but I also think I've gotten so comfortable with being home for so long and barely seeing anyone but my family and my trusty dog that I'm still <laughs> unearthing my old social self. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was interesting to me because I didn't want to be the uncomfortable loner marooned in a corner watching everyone else having fun together. But but what was interesting was how also that when I entered the room, you know, things happen, right? Like most people are nice and want to get to know you. And once you make friends in that new community, I feel like you're a better person for it. Or that's the way I exited the evening. So I say that because, uh, you know, I initially kept an arm's length distance from writers community in my early days as a writer, despite being, you know, very diligent and very determined. And I, I guess I thought I could do it all by myself, but I think I was also afraid of something that I wasn't exactly naming or probing. And that was rejection and vulnerability or just being uncomfortable. And so I'm curious, Brooke, if you remember when you first joined a writing community or, or really any community, I suppose. And if you remember what you were looking for or were you consciously looking for a community or did you stumble on one or maybe she writes the community was that kind of built in community that you stepped into? Yeah. I mean, you pretty much nailed it. Like I, it was already there. Um, and without she com, there wouldn't be no, she writes press. Uh, but I did seek Kami out to pitch the idea of building this press on the existing community that was She Writes. And it was a space that I really liked. I mean, I felt comfortable at She Writes right when it came because I was already working at Seal Press and Seal Press was a women's press. And so there was a comfort level there, I guess I would say. And so I found myself kind of falling into that community. I think comfort is a huge part of it. You know, a lot of people don't feel comfortable. You're talking about like, oh, the trepidation and the vulnerability vulnerability and all of this stuff. And so sometimes you just have to like stay there for a minute <laughs> until you find a buddy or you've been around a lot or enough that you start to know people. And I get all of that too, because I definitely have my moments with social stuff. I mean, I can, like a lot of people, I can be very out there and very social and in my element. And then in other moments, I can feel very reticent to throw myself into the fray. And it can take time. I, I think that's the other thing that it just is a thing where community is not necessarily 
necessarily automatic for people. And I think people struggle with that a lot, you know, and, and the other thing is that you might need to shop around for community, like the first place that you stumble on might not necessarily be your place. But I also think that community comes out of spending some time in a space. And so not to leave too early is the other advice I guess I have. Um, I will say like my earliest experience of community wasn't through writing, but through running. Uh, like I was a big runner in high school. And then I continued through college. And I made most of my closest friends because of running. And so obviously, Obviously, this idea of like a shared love of something that then causes you to bond with other people is what community is. Uh, so for people who feel shy or vulnerable, or maybe you don't have a community, just don't stop showing up. You know, it is that community that's going to lift you over the long run and help you stay connected to sense of purpose. Um, but I, I think, Grant, that's what I'm touching upon is like, I hear people all the time just saying like, oh, I, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. And or I feel uncomfortable. And then that is like the source of alienation, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an interesting thing to navigate, um, especially if you want to very kind of intentionally or consciously join a community. And and I always say that NaNoWriMo is a writing event that just happens to be a community. And I, I think people who don't participate in NaNoWriMo sometimes don't realize how fundamental a community is to that experience. And in fact, if Cammy didn't invent the line, writers don't let writers write alone. I think someone in NaNoWriMo might have come up with it, or I bet on that. Like I was thinking one of our volunteers, Bill Patterson, used to say, writing is a solitary activity best done in groups, which I guess is a variation of that. And, you know, your story matters is our mantra. So in a way, the whole premise of what we do is about belonging. But I really like your definition of a community through running, that the definition of a community is a shared love of something that then causes you to bond with other people. I think in its simplest form, that's a great definition. And another definition of community from the NaNoWriMo angle is about, you know, we're telling people that they have this special gift, that their story matters, and and then try to create the environment for them to give it. So it's a variation of that. And I mentioned how I wrote alone for long term, and now I engage with several writing communities. I, I couldn't even list them, I think. I engage with so many in different ways. And, and I just realized how they infuse me with a creative foundation that my lonely little dark garret of a writing life previously never provided. And I just, I just find it interesting, I guess, to think about and identify the ways that I am buoyed by these communities. And, and I especially cherish the NaNoWriMo communities, you know, uh, kind of rollicking and encouraging and whimsical spirit because, you know, the community is all about really all about helping everyone realize their creative dreams rather than being about, you know, creating hierarchies of status because hierarchies of status are exclusionary by definition. I guess that you could say if a, if a community is doing that, maybe it isn't a community or maybe it's not a healthy community. So I'm curious if you think there are any downsides of community, Brooke. Do you think there are people who are better off going it alone? I don't think there are downsides. Um, I, I certainly think there are people who are more suited to going it alone, but probably those people are not listening to our podcast. You <laughs> know, I, I'm thinking like people have told me that they feel like this podcast is a community for them. And I love that, you know, and so I think that people do seek that kind of thing out and they tend to be more community minded. Um, but, you know, recently I lost my dad, I've shared, and he's survived by his longtime partner who was telling me recently how much of a loner he 
is, you know, that he doesn't really like other people all that much. Um, And then in the aftermath of losing my dad, I was encouraging him to do stuff, you know, like go to church, go to the pool, go to the senior center, say yes to some things that you would usually say no to, right? Um, Because I could see that even though he thinks he's a loner, he's self-imposing a lot of suffering on himself by taking that stance because it's a position. Like, I'm not a joiner. I don't like people. I don't want to put myself out there. But then when you get in return, when you do that, of course, there's a whole lot of loneliness and disconnection. So I've just been seeing this with this person that I'm very close to. Um, You know, so yeah, like some people are loners, but I know that connection is good for mental health, right? We know this, it's actually proven. Um, and, And then when it comes to a passion or a hobby or a goal, which is what writing is for most people, Um, there's this thing where other people are carrying you and Kelly's going to speak to this in the interview, right? Like they help you hit those goals, get to the finish line. And when things get emotionally tough, they lift you and we shouldn't have to do it alone. You know, whether we're talking about the aftermath of loss or this profound journey that is, you know, trying to get a book done. That's a great story about your father's partner, Brooke. And I think you're right. We can too often categorize ourselves as a type of person and then, we shut out possibilities as, as a result. And I know that's what I did when I was more of a loner writer and telling myself something similar. Uh, but but I love stories about how writers have thrived together or essentially created each other. And I think that's what a community does. You are kind of creating each other and empowering each other. And I often tell the story about how when C.S. Lewis met J.R.R. Token, they were just you know two men with a writing hobby, but they bonded over their interests in Nordic myths, and they formed a writing group called the Inklings, and then little books like The Hobbit and The Chronicles of Narnia came next. You know, <laughs> like that might not have happened if they hadn't met each other and formed a community. And I think there are a lot of stories like that. So I came up with a list, three different ways that I think a writing community can help you, and here's what I've got. So. I actually think creativity does thrive in collaboration, whether it's, you know, intense, intentional collaboration or just casual collaboration. You know, none of us is as smart as all of us, basically. Secondly, if you fall, you fall into others' arms in a community. So, you know, like if you meet regularly to write with others, you know, it obviously keeps you accountable. And Kelly has some great stories about that. I think you're more likely to stop writing when your main character decides to play dead while you're alone at home than when you're in a room full of other writers who are going to drop their pins and help you brainstorm a way out of a block corner. And then sometimes, and Kelly touches on this too, you know, you need people to celebrate with or you just need somebody to commiserate with um, as well, you know, because writing a book can be this overwhelming beast. But when you have a breakthrough of success, you know, you really want to hear from your people. You want to hear that crash of symbols. That's really important. So just a few reasons to seek out a community in some form. I love all of those, Grant, and I agree with all of them. And it's building on all the things that we're saying and talking to Kelly about in the interview today. And I just want to remind people, like, you can find online community in all kinds of ways. I mean, it could just be a Facebook group, right? It could be something like NaNoWriMo, of course, that's a built-in community that you can try out and just kind of dip your toe in. Maybe go to one event, you know, like a writer's conference or even a book reading. Um, just show up at something. So I want to just put that out there to people. Challenge yourself. Maybe feel the dread and do it anyway. Uh, and if you're already super community-minded um, and all this stuff is like, yeah, I do this already, then maybe your job is to draw a friend who is more reticent than you are because another part of what makes communities go are those self-designated community leaders you know the mother hens and the people connectors we all love those people um, because it certainly takes a village grant i know that to be true 
I love your challenges. Um, I think they're really worthwhile for people to think about just for the sake of experimentation, which is a key part of any creative process, you know, keep things new, shake them up because you never know when you might just become a joiner sort of out of the blue like me. And on that note, let's take a short break and then please join us in a conversation with Kelly Garrett. Welcome back, everybody. I'm super excited to introduce Kelly Garrett, who is the author of the award-winning Like a Sister, about a black woman in New York City looking into the mysterious overdose of her estranged reality star sister. And in addition to being featured on the Today Show, the suspense novel was a Book of the Month April 2022 selection, the Oxygen Channel's July Book Club pick, an Edgar Award finalist, Anthony Award nominee, and Lefty Award winner. Kelly previously wrote the Detective by Day Lightweight Mysteries, which have won the Anthony, Agatha, Lefty, and Ippy Awards, a lot of awards. And Kelly is also <laughs> co- <laughs> Kelly is also a co-founder of Crime Writers of Color, which received the 2023 Raven Award, one more award, from MWA. And her next suspense novel, Missing White Woman, which is going to win a lot of awards also, I think, will be out next April. Welcome, Kelly. Hi. I'm, I'm not apologizing for my awards. Don't. No. Hell no. I have them all displayed in my house. <laughs> good. Good for you, man. You can't get enough awards, I think. I don't think you can cap out. But Kelly, I'm very fascinated by your writing journey uh, because it's taken a lot of twists and turns, I guess. And and I think listeners will be interested in 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 your path. And I recently found out, actually, in researching for this interview, that you began your first published novel, Hollywood Homicide, in National Novel Writing Month in 2011. And you wrote 30,000 words, which is a great pace, by the way, 1,000 words a day. That's great. So I was wondering if you can you can tell us uh, more about your experience of writing those 30,000 words and then how you took the novel further to publication. First of all, I appreciate, Grant, that you were giving me pats because I was like, oh, only 30. But um <laughs> Just to start off, like I have wanted to write a novel, a book. I wanted to be an author since I was five. And I don't think I published my first book until I was like 37 or something. So it took a really long time. And like, I just was afraid. I still am afraid to write. And so I can remember I had just come back. I was living in LA and I had just come back home to New, uh, New Jersey. And I'd had this idea, um, for a mystery novel that I was like, Oh, this could actually work. But I like just wasn't working on it. And so my friend and I were like, oh, what is this? Like, oh, National Novel Writing Month. What is this? Like, we should do it. And so I think before that, I had only a, like, like maybe like a, I'd done a lot of, um, of course, I call it time wasting, but it's not a lot of like, you know, research and like envisioning what the characters look like and all this stuff. So I had an outline, but I was just too afraid to put like, you know, the words on the page. And so. We did nano and I even like would go to like nano get togethers in New York City and do all this stuff. And so um, I had 30,000. Yeah. Afterwards, which I had never had written that much of a book before. And how long did it take you like afterwards? to? to... Well, once November was over. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. Tell us about post. <laughs> it took that was longer. So I started it in started it in 2011, right into 2011. And I had a draft by, cause I was in Pitch Wars. I was a Pitch Wars mentee in 2014. So I think I had had the draft maybe two years, like 2013, 2014. I was starting to query it to look for an agent. And I happened to find out about Pitch Wars from a friend who told me very casually. And we did another draft there. So, and then the book came out in 2017. So it's so funny because people like still talk about 
about Hollywood homicide. And, you know, like for me, it was something I worked on initially at this point, like, you know, 12, I'm so bad at math, 12 years ago. Right. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, so it's interesting to me because it's such a, each book I write represents that part of my life, you know? So, um, I have moved on from that part of my life. So it's interesting to like when people talk about it or ask questions about it. Well, Kelly, let's pick up on Pitch Wars, uh, because that was crucial to your process. You just mentioned it. Uh, It was an event where uh, unagented writers were paired with published mentors who helped them to polish their work. And then that would be like uh, showcased. Right. And uh, unfortunately, it's been disbanded. But I know that Pitch Wars is the reason that you value community so much and that you met a lot of your closest friends through your time as both a mentee and a mentor. And so I'm curious if you could talk a bit more about the role that community provided in that space specifically and, you know, afterward, too. So I'm a writer who actually hates writing. Like if you look at my (laughs) um, my signature, my email, it's like I hate writing. I love having written, which is a Dorothy Parker quote. And so. The only way I can write is with a community. Like even to this day, I'm in like, I just finished my fourth novel and I still have to sprint with a friend, like holding my hand to finish a book. Um, so that's why I think I liked Nano and I think I liked Pitch Wars is that I was not alone doing it because it can be very solitary. And so I had heard about Pitch Wars and I joined it. And then it's funny because I didn't even know until after it was almost over and it was the agent showcase that there was a community on Facebook of all the other mentees from 2014. And it was so great because we were all at the same part of our, like our careers where we just, none of us had an agent, you know, and we had um, just all worked really hard to rewrite this book, you know, and, and now we were there together and we had, we were able to kind of like cheerlead when we needed, you know, sympathize when we needed, whatever you needed. And so because of both Pitch Wars and Sisters in Crime, I kind of made me realize like, oh, community is so important. And I kept creating other communities to try to mimic that. So like when I, um, my book, I signed my book deal, I started a group of other 2017 debuts and I still talked to a lot of them too. And then eventually I helped co-found a group called Crime Writers of Color, you know, just all because I really valued that community I found of like-minded individuals all going through some similar circumstances um, through pitch wars. So, so thank you to Brenda Drake for founding that. Yeah, Kelly, I was actually going to ask more about that because I, you know, just reading about you before this interview, I, I knew that you're a very community oriented writer and you've obviously deepened that just, just in your first few answers here. But I am curious about um, since you founded crime writers of color, um, and alongside Walter Mosley and Gigi Pandian, I was wondering if you can tell us more about why you founded the group and, and then, um, yeah, just more about how it um, answers your need for community and other people's need for community. So when I, um, like 2017, 2016, I um, was surprised there was not already a group because like I said, I had been at that point, I think I was a board member at, with Sisters in Crime, you know, and so I kind of understood they also had a group called guppies which is the great unpublished which was supposed to be for people who were not yet published and what would happen with guppies is even after people became published they'd stuck around and would give advice to the other other people and so i was just surprised i was like why isn't there already a group for crime writers of color because it's that's such a unique situation 
um, in crime fiction. It's, it has a very unique, like you're dealing with the usual publishing circumstances and then dealing with other circumstances of being a person of color um, in publishing, which is not always kind to us. And um, I had found out Gigi Pondian and I were talking about it and we were like, we should start a group. Um, we had our first little mini meetup at Malice Domestic Conference. And then I think someone, maybe Naomi Hirohara, had put under a, 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 this is a Facebook comment, Walter Mosley wants to start a group too. And I was like, that's great, Naomi. Like, I don't know Walter Mosley. Like, we don't, like, go, like, I don't go in the same circle as, like, the, one of the biggest, you know, authors of all time, right? <laughs> but l- luck would have it that the next week I was invited to do a panel with him. And I was like, well, if I meet Walter Mosley, the first thing I'm going to say to him is I want to start a group too. And to his credit, he did not run away from me. He literally took my number. He called me. We talked for a good hour. We argued a bit during that time. (laughs) Um, And we decided to start the group. And so I invited everyone I knew. Gigi invited everyone she knew. Walter invited everyone they like he knew. So we had this great collection of 30 people. And because of where we all were in our careers. Like I was more of the newbie and Walter obviously was super established and Gigi was also established, but not as much. We had a great cross section of people of color. So from the beginning, we had a really great community and, and safe space to be, to network and support, support each other. And I think even to this day, now we have over 400 members. My favorite thing is we have, we're basically in a listserv. We have a thread called the good news thread where anyone can just put any good news they have. And it's so great because similar to Guppies, you know, you might put something in and then like Naomi Hirohara or Sean Cosby, S.A. Cosby are going to congratulate you, you know, and and people cheer just as much for someone getting their first agent as they do for Sean getting on the bestseller list for the third time, you know, we're all equal in the group, which is so great. And it helps because we also make a point if you go to like a conference, a mystery conference, where usually there's not a lot of people of color. Now, when you go, you know, you're going to know people, which is great, too. Mm. That's very awesome. It's one of the things I think is so powerful about online communities. And, you know, Grant and I were talking about the fact that community has a lot of different forms. And you have kind of a cool story, which is that your mom introduced you to crime fiction through her bookshelves, which I think is a really amazing connection. And then that's how you discovered your favorite author, Barbara Neely and her Blanche White series, um, basically on your mom's shelves. So I would love to hear more about this story, because I saw that you wrote an article about her, started a correspondence with her and almost met her before she died, which is sad that that didn't get to happen. But I think there's something really important there about uh, how people can be mentors. I mean, you happen to have a correspondence with her, but I think for even for writers who never correspond with a potential mentor, they can be mentors to them without even knowing it. So could you talk about your thoughts on that and also what that was like for you to have that correspondence with Barbara Neely? I truly believe representation matters. And so I was very lucky in that I was a teenager in the 90s. And in the 90s is when Walter Mosley came out. Um, Barbara Neely came out maybe like a year or two after him. Um, Valerie Wilson Wesley came out. All of these, it was around like Terry McMillan. Like it was kind of like really like one of the first times that publishing realized like, oh, if we publish books by black people, People will read them, not just black people, you know? And so they were kind of really um, doing a publishing a lot of, especially crime fiction. And so I would go to, I would just go to Barnes and Noble and have my mom would drop me off and I would just like look at the shelves. So I, I had her bookshelves and then I would go to the bookstore too. Um, and it just really helped me realize I could do that one day. 
unfortunately, um, by the time I was like in the 2000s, most of them, including Barbara, weren't publishing anymore for a variety of reasons. Um, but just ha- knowing, seeing those books when I was in my formative years just really helped me and gave me the confidence to say that, oh, maybe one day that could be me because there's another black woman and she did it. So maybe one day I can do it too. Um, and so with Barbara, I can remember, um, I was doing like a, a, like a round table discussion for like LA review of books. And, um, like Walter was in it and Gar, Anthony Haywood was in it and, um, Kira Davis. And I was trying to get someone else and they weren't doing it. And someone was like, what about Barbara Neely? And I was like, so nervous. I was like, what? Like, I can't talk to Barbara Neely, but I emailed her and she did it. And I was so amazed. And then, um, when I wrote the, the, the crime article you're talking about, I didn't tell her about it, but her agent sent it to her. <laughs> And so she emailed me and then she, she always had signed her emails just Neely. And I was just like, oh my God, like Barbara Neely, like read something that I wrote, even if it was like an article. And like, you know, and I was glad that she was able to see because I think she stopped publishing. She only wrote four Blanche books. And I want to say she stopped publishing them in the early 2000s, you know, and I think it, I wanted her to understand the, the impact that she had on people like me and like a Tracy Clark and like a Rachel Housel Hall in terms of the people, the black women in crime fiction who came after her, you know, and she was Barbara, like was a sensation when she came out. She was like the first black woman to win an Anthony award and the first black woman to win a McCavity. I think she, no, I don't know if she won. She might've won the Agatha. I don't remember, you know? And then of course, because of publishing, the second black woman to win the Anthony um, and the Agatha was me. And that was, I think, a good 20 plus years later. So I'm so glad I got to tell her that. And then um, I was supposed to go and sit with her at the Edgars when she got her Grandmaster Award. But one COVID happened and then she passed away. Uh, but it was so, even just having that email from her inviting me to do it, it was just really special. And so I'm glad that she, that even though she died before we could actually tell her in person that she was able to kind of see the impact that she had on so many people with both articles and people talking about her and that grandmaster award from uh, mystery writers of America. That's an amazing story. Um, just as you were telling it, I don't know if any of my heroes have ever read something I've written. So that's really <laughs> special to just kind of know that, that your words have been received and she's affected you so deeply. And- I'm in this weird period of my career where I'm like four, four books in and I'm getting people who I respect, like Alora Lippman and Mike Walter Mosley have read my books and that like freaks me out. But then also they're like, they like me as a person and we're friends and I can go and ask them questions. And it's just so strange to me. I'm like, look, like Walter Mosley like knows I exist, period. And he likes me enough to like want to have, have a friendship with me and mentor me. That to me is just so, it's amazing. That is, Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to go back a little bit further into your writing journey and maybe into, I don't know if these experiences were community oriented experiences or not, but, um, before you published your first novel, you'd spent eight years working in Hollywood, including a stint writing for the CBS drama Cold Case. And you also had an MFA in screenwriting from USC's famous film school. So I'm curious how, you know, that is a very different writing world. And how did that TV writing uh, career influence your books or even your writing today? Um, I think it's good and bad. So like the bad is that with, with screenwriting, like you, you said, it's a different beast and 
because it's something that's filmed, you're very limited in what you can put on the page. And so even to this day with my books, like I suck at description. Like sometimes I realize sometimes I never describe what people look like, period. Other times I might remember or someone might tell me. I can remember my friend was like, like I went, you've talked about this house so many times or going in this house and I have no idea what it looks like because I never described it. And honestly, in my mind, I'm like, it's a house. It has a couch. Like, what do you need to know? <laughs> like, what do you need to know about it? But um, I suck at description because of that. I think on the flip side, I think I'm, I personally think others might not agree. I think I'm really good at dialogue. And I think I'm good at the idea that with a screenplay or, or a TV show too, Every scene has to move the story forward because you only have a very set time. You have like 40, what, 42 minutes if you take out, you account for com commercials. So every scene has to move the story forward. So I think, especially with my um, first two books, especially when I was closer to the screenwriting world, my plots are like, boom, 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 boom. I'm like, we're always going to get some information. It's always going to be fast moving. And I think the biggest thing that I learned is that with um, TV shows, they call the last scene before a commercial the act out, and it's a climactic moment because they want you, this is back in the day, to sit through like commercials for things you'd buy anyway and not change the channel. So I, I used to, and I, I hope I still did it with this last book, I always have what I call a chapter out where I end every chapter on a climactic moment. So hopefully the reader's like, oh, let me just stay up and read one more chapter. Like that to me is the ultimate compliment is I have to just read one more chapter. So that was, that was a conscious decision with the two, the first two books, especially. That's, uh, that's good advice for folks too, because it's, that's what makes a page turner, right? Oh, exactly. Uh, <laughs> well, let's talk about your newest book, Like a Sister. Uh, I want to read what the LA Times said, which is the novel represents a level up for the New Jersey native and USC alum, the culmination of two decades of writing and a lifetime of experience. So we wanted to know, is the novel a level up for you? And if you agree with that, what does that mean? I hope that every book I write is better than the last, right? I hope that I'm getting better and not stagnant or even worse, right? I think the difference is, so with the first two books were part of a series. And honestly, like if you guys had talked to 2017 me and were like, where would you be in 2023? I'd be like, oh, well, obviously I would be on books, I don't know, like six and seven of my Detective by Day series. Like my plan was just to write try to be like a Jana Ivanovich and like try to write these books for the rest of my life. Unfortunately, my publisher closed very abruptly. And so um, I couldn't continue the series. And so I kind of had this, like, what do I do now? Like I have a reset. It's a forced reset, but it could be good. And so I had the idea for um, a standalone. And so I think, whereas the series is, is meant to be very funny and kind of like a Stephanie Plum novel, these are, it's more serious. There's still humor in it just because I'm always going to have humor and it's not going to be very dark, but the humor comes more in her outlook on life than it does the situations. So I think, I think it's a level up in that way. Um, I mean, I also think it's what you like. If you like funny books, you might like the day books, the series more than you like the standalone or you like, you know, cozies. You're going to like those books better. But um, I really do hope that, just me as a writer, it's a better book, better written book, period. So, and I hope that Missing White Woman, which comes out next year, is a much better book than the first three. 
And I hope that whatever I'm working on now, which is an idea in my head that's driving me nuts, will eventually one day, like what, two years from now, be a better book than the other four. And on, on that note, Kelly, obviously your writing and publishing career, you know, it's taken different paths or different resets, as you put it. So I'm curious, you know, what you'd like to tell listeners about the writing life. And um, I think most, you know, assume them they're like 2008 Kelly, maybe. I don't know. But yeah, what's your favorite bit of, of wisdom or inspiration to pass on? I mean, I think one, I think you have, I'm going to go back to community because I think a lot of times because it's a creative pursuit, people forget that writing, publishing is a business, right? And there's going to be some decision, business decisions that are made. And I think sometimes people are like, oh, like, you know, it should be fair and equal. And unfortunately, it's not just because it's a business. And so I think building that community now is going to help you for your career because um, you want to be able to have someone there to celebrate the victories, but also the low points. Because even like, I think a lot of times people think, oh, well, once I sell the book, it's smooth sailing and as I told you, like my publisher closed and, you know, there's still, it's just different drama. It's still drama, just different drama and issues. And so have that community there like beforehand. And I think I noticed that with crime writers of color where people are afraid to sometimes talk in the group because they feel like they have to have an agent or they have to have a book deal. And I always say like, don't wait to join the community, like be active now so people can be on your journey with you and cheer for you and help you out you know, in different ways. So I think that would be my biggest thing to tell 2008 Kelly is just get that community going now. Don't be afraid to do that. That's great advice, Kelly. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kelly. Awesome advice. And yes, I love the community minded piece of this. So thanks for bringing it full force. Thanks for having me, Grant and Brooke. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Brooke, this week's book trend is a scary one to me. It's about book data. And that's scary to me because each time I publish a book, I'm concerned about the sales. Not so much for the money I'll make, but actually because I want to make sure I sell enough books so that my next book will have a good chance of being published. And I want, you know, I want to keep the door open, in other words, so the publishers can see possibilities, not closed doors. But but here's the rub. A lot, a lot of sales don't necessarily get recorded by BookScan, you know, which is the main source for sales reporting. And I sell, you know, I sell books through the NaNoWriMo store, or I sell books uh, that I own myself, or I sell books at venues that aren't bookstores, and, and none of that gets recorded in my overall sales. So my overall sales are very inaccurate, and I think a lot of authors are. So I feel like I'm at the mercy of metrics, not at the mercy of how good my book is, which is what I'd prefer. And that's one reason I was happy to see Jane Friedman's coverage in her uh, newsletter, The Hot Sheet, of a recent U.S. book show panel that showed how much data informs what publishers acquire. And I thought it'd be nice, a uh, nice learning moment for us all, actually, to uh, look at just how publishers look at data. Yeah, because publishers definitely look at numbers, but uh, those numbers are broader than just sales because there's BookScan, uh, but BookScan actually only accounts for 70% of all sales. So in that sense, it never really offers a full picture. And publishers are actually making acquisitions decisions based on a lot of things uh, beyond sales. I mean, of course, because if you're acquiring a debut author, then there's no previous sales to look at in the first place. And so there are numbers that matter, uh, things like how many social media followers an author might have, uh, things like 
comments on social media posts. I mean, you might not think that an editor or a publisher is going to get down there in the weeds, but sometimes they do because they're actually looking at engagement and not just the number of followers because you could have a lot of followers and not very many likes on your post. Um, and then if publishers really want a book or if an editor specifically wants to acquire a book, then that editor will oftentimes build a case, uh, which can kind of get into more manipulating of the numbers. And this might have to do with like how well a comparative title is selling. Uh, they might look at Amazon rankings of like books, which sometimes you know, authors are surprised to hear. Uh, and then book proposals are always making a case for who the projected audience might be. Uh, and that should definitely look at stats and numbers, which means that you, the author, if you're building a book proposal, you want to fold into that as many numbers as you can, statistics about who your potential readership is. And none of that necessarily means that it has to be true. You know, it's like it's a lot of squishy numbers when we're looking at publishing and there's lots of room for error. Um, and on the flip side of that, there's lots of room for magic, right? It's the thing about book publishing is that it's not an exact science. And so the more data you can give a publisher when you're an author who wants to get published, the better. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you for that extra context. And my biggest takeaway from the article is the data has to be put in context because, you know, a data point in isolation often doesn't say anything that's truly meaningful. And one of the panelists said that he asked three questions about everything uh, they acquire, every book they acquire. One, who is the reader? Two, how does this author speak or how are they connected to that reader? And three, why will this book from this author sell to that reader? And I, I like those questions because they're, well, so simple and direct and they're questions that I think every author should actually ask. And then in your book proposal, any data you can share that answers one of those three questions is relevant and can help persuade a publisher to acquire and publish a book. That was one word that I focused on with data was that to use it in a persuasive way. And I think mm -hmm. that applies especially to nonfiction authors. Yeah, definitely. Nonfiction authors should be prepared to include lots of data in their proposals, as I was saying. Uh, and then would-be authors and authors uh, need to think about how their numbers are going to support sales, right? So that includes the numbers I was talking about earlier, the engagement, social media. But that can also include numbers, like if you have a podcast or a newsletter, you can share engagement, let people know like how many followers of your podcast or how many subscribers to your newsletter you have. So so many more people like you, Grant, are doing sub stacks. And so you can track your numbers on that as well. And, and if you've published an article or an op-ed and you have a lot of engagement, you can say, you know, I got X number of comments or X number of likes, and that actually matters. And then going beyond your numbers, you can certainly consider listing authors you know in your proposal. This is about platform building, and it's really important, but how many followers they have, and if they can be counted on to be supportive of your book, those are additional numbers that you're looking at because that matters to publishers uh, or if your key audience you know happens to match perfectly with the demographics of a place like target um that's also persuasive data so there's lots and lots to look at yeah definitely and you know in the article one of the panelists peter hildick smith and he's president of codex which is a research firm you know serving the publishing industry and he came up with or he comes up with a author equity score for authors which 
also sounded a little scary to me as an author, but I get why publishers do it. But the basics of it is that he, I guess he does get in the weeds, like you were saying, Brooke, and determines the score, which equals the sales potential of a book. And it takes into account things like whether your followers are also book buyers. Um, so even if somebody has several million social media followers, some, some percentage of them, you know, or he looks at the percentage of them are, that are likely book buyers. I don't know how he determines that, but evidently he does. But as an example, he mentioned, you know, Tina Fey's memoir, Bossy Pants, uh, which was released a few years ago. And he was asked to come up with her author equity score. And it turns out that she has a book buyer fan base to die for bigger than David Baldacci's. And and her book, you know, turned out to be a major bestseller as a result. So, again, this is all still intimidating to me. So one tactic might be that's relevant to both me and our listeners, you know, those of us who aren't Tina Fey, is to be active in a community of book readers and evangelists. And, And Kelly was saying that as well espousing that on the level of, 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 of doing it very naturally and organically and building that community and being a part of it. But on the flip side, if publishers see an author who is friends with readers who go out and not only buy the author's work, but tell all their friends, you know, that can be valuable unto itself. So, so I think uh, literary citizenship is good to do just for the sake of it, but it also can lead to unplanned good consequences. Yeah, it's hard to be an aspiring author who has not worked at developing a following, <laughs> you know, and, and so we're saying all of this and you sort of started out by saying, oh, this is a scary trend, but it's one that I'm always talking to authors about, you know, start early because there's so much that needs to be done. Um, but there's also stuff that is like the, the magic part I mentioned that is just not predictable because one limitation of data is that it can't tell you about things that haven't happened before, right? Like data can't predict the future. Data doesn't know the trends that are coming. And I was thinking about someone like Colleen Hoover, right? Like Colleen Hoover's sales potential was not on anyone's radar. And BookScan had actually seen a decline in romance over the years. And then Colleen Hoover shows up and she's sold more than 20 million books. And an uh, interesting fact here, another point of data uh, is that in 2022, Hoover's books sold more copies than the Bible. So just again, like numbers are science data is science. Publishing is not really a scientific industry, so it's helpful, but it's not the end-all be-all. Yeah, those are quite some metrics. Um, And I just want to pause and thank our listeners for helping us build our metrics. You know, we just found out that our listenership puts us in the top 2% of podcasts, which just astounds me. And we're super happy about that because we like to think of this podcast as a community and we appreciate your contributions to this community, which means we appreciate your listening and spreading the word and taking part in the conversation in so many ways. So keep writing, keep listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Right Minded. 